time is running out. Two weeks from today, Brother Lonnie Jones will be standing in this pulpit preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have the ability to get some of these cards. There's a few up here, but there's many on the table in the back. And invite your neighbors and your friends. I will tell you that I counted last night. There are seven congregations that will be having meetings that same week or time. Brother Bill Boyd says the way that you say is we have a team effort going on. It's not we're in competition with one another. We're all working together on the same team. And we need to do our part. We need to reach those that we know. That means you don't invite just those brethren in the other congregations that you know. It means you invite those who really need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, start now inviting. Time is running out. Now, if you'll take your Bibles, let's focus for a few minutes on Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, and we're going to go through verse 23. And we're going to think about the idea of don't go back. Let me begin, first of all, with an introduction by asking you, has anyone ever attempted to try to tempt you to go back to your sinful past? Every one of us have a sinful past. Before you and I became a Christian, we were not a child of God. Before we were obedient to the gospel, we were living in sin. And there are those who would like to allure us and to tempt us. To give you a little bit of an idea of how this works, I want to make reference to 2 Peter chapter 2. Verses 18 through verse 21. Peter addresses a group of Christians that were being bombarded, if you will. They were being persuaded to go back into sinfulness. He said, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they then promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him is he also brought into bondage. Before we go on to verses 20 and 21, I want you to observe with me here what Peter is trying to say. These are people who have just escaped. They've gotten away from the worldliness and he says, don't allow someone to pull you back in. Now, verses 20 and 21. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it than to turn from the holy commandment that was delivered to them. What you realize is there are people who are out here trying to pull us back into sin. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, he said, We've spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, 
revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. When you become a Christian, you leave all of that behind. And there are there people trying to pull us back into our former sinful ways. Now when you go to the book of Colossians, you realize that that situation exists. And as you begin to think, you begin to realize that there are different groups pulling. For instance, those who are Jews are trying to pull their friends back into Judaism. We want you to still keep all of these feasts and all these holy days that Moses had set forth in the Old Testament. Likewise, many of those who have been Gentiles were being pulled back into paganism. Those who had once drank heavily in celebration of the god Bacchus, the god of wine, those who had participated in all of those lewd rituals like the goddess Aphrodite, those people were saying, come on back and do what we're doing. Be a part of who we are. Well, here's what we're going to do this morning, Lord willing. We want to look at verses 11 through 13 and look at the comparing and contrasting of circumcision and baptism. Paul will make a great point about that. Number two, we want to look at the caution regarding ceremonialism. There were some trying to pull the Jewish people back into this Old Testament system. And Paul's going to say, you don't need to do that. And then finally, he's going to talk about a caution about cultism, which primarily has some pagan backgrounds in it. So let's spend a few minutes now going through this section. Look with me again at verses 11 through 13. Brother Jared read those verses here just a few minutes ago. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. Who raised him from the dead and you being dread in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him having forgiven you all your trespasses, or all your trespasses. Now, what he's going to do, he's going to use a figure which they commonly understood. It didn't matter whether or not you were a Jew or even a Gentile. You understood the relationship of the God of heaven and circumcision. If you were a Jew, you understood it because of what the Old Testament practice involved. You understood that God had made it a sign of the covenant between he and Abraham. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to worship the God of the Bible, the God of heaven, the God the Jews worshipped, then you were generally what was called a God-fearer. The only distinction that would be is that you had not yet been circumcised and offered a sacrifice at the temple and been baptized. Yes, there was baptism under the Old Testament. In fact, when you visit the Bible lands and you go from city to city or site to site, there's a, 
a little baptistry there. They called it a mikvah, where there were ceremonial washings. If you go to Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 14, because of time, I'm not going to go through all of that, but I, I do want to make a point to you that when you look at verse 10, he says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. That meant that every Jewish boy from the eighth day was going to be circumcised. In verse 14, he goes on to point out that if you do not do this, he said, you will be cut off from the people because you've broken my covenant. But when you go to the Old Testament, you realize it is also not only a literal thing that they did, but it represented a figurative cutting off of sin. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And even when you come to the New Testament... Paul will make reference to that in chapter 2 and verses 28 and 29 of Romans. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. He's trying to say the distinction was not just that physical act but it was a spiritual one as well. Now when Paul is going to compare that, and now he's going to contrast as well how baptism fits in that for those who are Christians. Because you see, when you and I are baptized, our sins are cut off, if you will. That is, they are forgiven. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38 those Jewish people on the day of Pentecost came to Peter and to the rest of the apostles and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the response was, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. That means when a young man, a young woman, an older man, an older woman is baptized that is when their sins are cut off. Oh, but that's not the only passage. In Acts 22, verse 16, Paul, after he had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and after he had been there praying, Ananias came and said, Now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. But that's not the only place. First Peter chapter 3, verse 21, there's also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, those, it is at baptism where that takes place. But you learn also from this passage... That baptism is not only where the sins are cut off, but that the means of it is an immersion. 
He said, buried with him in baptism. And I think the great value of that is to see that when you die to your sins, you are buried, you bury that old man, and then you raise a new man who lives a new type life. In Romans 6, verses 4 through 6, Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What that means is, is that as those sins are cut off and we are raised now, we're raised a new person. A person who is willing and ready to serve God. Now he's made his point. When you become a Christian... You're supposed to change. You're supposed to, to be different. You're supposed to be that new man. But there's some cautions that go with it. Let's look at verses 14 through 17. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding of a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ." Now, having used an Old Testament figure, that of circumcision, now Paul is going to warn about that law and going back to it. In fact, it doesn't take a person real long studying through Scripture to realize that those who were Jews were constantly being drawn back into Judaism. All you have to do is read the book of Galatians to see the strong pull of what we sometimes refer to as the Judaizing teachers. That is simply people trying to pull them back to live under that Old Testament. But Paul's going to use some unmistakable terms here. Things that are so clear you can't miss what he's trying to say. He said he wiped out the handwriting of requirements. What was the handwriting of requirements? It involved those Old Testament laws that made you and I a sinner. All you have to do is read Romans 4, verse 15, without, where there's no law, there's no transgression. Read chapter 7, particularly verses 7 through 14 of Romans and you come away with the understanding that sin became exceedingly sinful. Paul would say through the knowledge of sin is how I became a sinner. You see those handwritings of requirements and someone says, well, I'm not sure that I understand. Acts 3 verse 19, he says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. There was a distinction between that Old Testament law and the one that was the New Testament. The Old Testament law had no means of blotting out your sins. It could show you were a sinner, but it couldn't save you. 
You have to come to the New Testament to the sacrifice of Christ. He said he's taken it out of the way. That Old Testament, you and I read, was taken away in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the whole chapter focuses on not that Old Testament law which was written and engraved on stones, but that which was engraved on our hearts. It doesn't take a person long studying Hebrews chapter 10 to realize that it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And so as the writer of Hebrews says, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. When did he do that? When he nailed it to the cross. You see, up until the cross... Everyone lived under that Old Testament law who was a Jew. But when Christ came and he brought a new covenant and he died on the cross, that Old Testament was nailed to it. You see, certain ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament were being bound by people. Even those who were claiming to be Christians were saying, we've got to keep some of them. Listen to a couple of passages. Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel saying, These are the animals which you may eat among the animals that are upon the earth. And then Moses enumerates those animals which could be eaten. Chapter 23 verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be a holy convocations. These are my feasts. And then he begins to enumerate the feasts which each of the children of Israel were to keep. Dietary laws, feasts and holy days. These were characteristics of those Old Testament passages. But he says these are but a shadow and the substances of Christ. There's a wonderful study, if a person wants to take time to do it, to look at the Old Testament as simply being a shadow cast from the events of the New Testament. Or you could spend a lot of time looking at things like, for instance, the church being the temple of God and that Old Testament temple. Or you can look at things such as Christ being the deliverer, And you can look at Moses being a deliverer and Joshua being the deliverer. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very images of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who approach or make those who approach perfect. You can participate in them year after year after year and you're never going to reach perfection. Chapter 8 and verse 5, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Moses, this is a, a copy, if you will, of the originals. And so... After he's used this illustration about circumcision and baptism, he says, but don't let yourself be drawn back into this ceremonial way. 
In Galatians 4, verses 9 through 11. But after you have known God, or rather been known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. If you go back to that Old Testament and you find your meaning there, then what will Christ mean to you? So there's the warning. Now let's take the third aspect of this, the caution of cultism. We'll look at verses 18 and 19 first, and then we'll take verses 21 through 23 in a moment. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by what or by the joints and the ligaments, and grows with the increase that is from God. I want you to key on that word cheat here. What's at stake is your reward. And somebody can cheat you out of it. You see, once you become a child of God, you have the promise of God. That is eternal life. What if somebody comes to you and talks you out of that? Persuades you that it's not that valuable. They cheat you. And that's a thought that he has in mind here of a person becoming a child of God and then either being drawn back into Judaism or maybe even back into paganism and be cheated by that. What they were suggesting was is if you were not living an ascetic life that you were not really spiritual. Now, if you don't understand what ascetic means, that's okay. It describes a person who is not going to become very happy or very sad. You don't laugh. You don't enjoy uh, life. You, you just take it somberly. You don't cry when you lose someone close to you or when things go badly. You are again somber. No high highs, no low lows. You just basically live life in a bland, nondescript kind of way. I want you to listen as Paul describes this in verses 21 through 23. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. That's a quotation. Now listen. He says, which all concern things which perish with using according to the doctrines and the commandments of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Don't touch it. Don't taste it. Don't handle it. These relate to things that he describes here as self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body. These people say, if you will do that, you will be a more spiritual person. 
I'm often amazed that when you go to some of the places where the Catholic Church has been strong and they have um, these monks who've lived the lifestyle of a hermit. Some of them may live in a cave years upon end and drink only water and eat only bread. Their lifestyles are, are, are just, you know, you don't ever smile, but you don't ever frown either. And someone says, that makes you holier. No, it doesn't. Paul says it doesn't. He said they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't stop you from having bad desires. It doesn't stop you from even desiring to participate. He said these things are according to the doctrines and the commandments of men. If I want to compare it, if you will, to the Jews... Do you remember their idea of this false sense of piety? In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they receive their reward. Some of them felt like, if I dress up in clothes that makes me look spiritual... And if when I am participating in some kind of activity, I make myself look worse, that somehow that makes me more spiritual. And he says it doesn't. You see, that's really the essence of cultism. Where a person follows a man versus following God. That's what a cult is. When people have abandoned following God in His direction to follow what some man has told us. And so His caution is getting involved with cultic practices, especially worshiping of angels, is no value. The only way not to drift back into this former life is to hold fast to the head. I want to go back to verse 19 again. Not holding fast the head. You know the head of the church is Christ. The head that he's talking about is our Lord. Chapter 1 verse 27, which is in you Christ, the hope of glory. He says from whom the whole body, you have the head, it's nourishing and knit together by the joints and ligaments. Grows with the increase that is from God. You want to hold on. You want to not go back. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Keep doing what He tells you to do. Living like He tells you. Because when you became a Christian, you expressed your faith in Jesus Christ. You repented of your sins. You confessed that faith. And then you were baptized for the remission of your sins. We are raised to walk a new life in Christ. And so this morning we ask the question, where are you? Are you in Christ? Are you a Christian? Have you been baptized as the Lord is described here? In Colossians 1 and verse 13, he says, He's translated us from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. 
Have you done that? If you've not, then we want to encourage you to be obedient this morning. Are you a child of God who is walking with the Lord? Or have you pulled back into the word world and all that it offers to you? Then you need to come back to the Lord. We're going to sing the song, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. If you need to respond, please come together as we stand and sing.